God, thank you so much. Uh, you are so great. Uh, we will not exhaust that. We will not say that too many times. We will never sing it too loudly. You are so great and you are so mighty to save. You have saved us and we are so secure through what you've done for us in your son Jesus that nothing can be done to change or alter that, God. Thank you, Father, for this. God, we love you. We need your help. God, would you use your word to accomplish your purpose now? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, thank you guys so much, Chris, and y'all serving us in that way. Well, good morning. You guys feeling good? You glad it's 4th of July? I am. I have two favorite holidays. It's Thanksgiving and 4th of July, and so I'm super happy. Um, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Crossroad Wilmington. Um, we're going to look at Acts 15 today, verses 1 through 35. And uh, I think um, definitions are helpful. So I want to define two words that are, I'm going to say a lot today. Uh, the first one is the adjective superior. Something that is described as superior is something that is higher in rank, status, or quality, greater in quality or value than. And the other one is inferior. It's another adjective, and things that are inferior are lower in order, status, rank, or quality, and are subordinate. So we are sinners, and all of us have an understanding of the guilt that we have incurred to ourselves and our sin that is inferior to what it should be. All of us tend to underestimate just how guilty we are. None of us truly, rightly understand the depth to which we don't deserve anything from God, much less his forgiveness and acceptance and love that he has for us. God, on the other hand, is holy, and that is something that is also where we have an inferior understanding. None of us grasp now, nor ever will, the height and the great degree of God's awesome holiness. He is superior to all beings and all of existence everywhere for all time. He is supremely great and right in all that he does, correct in all his decisions, right in all of his judgments. His righteousness is so superior that he would even be right in condemning us without providing any way for us to be saved. But God has definitely not done that. God has mercifully and graciously provided everything that's necessary for us to be saved and have new life and complete forgiveness and complete justification through Jesus. He has not left us in our hopeless, guilty condition. And he has done that because he is loving. At the exact same time that God is holy, God is loving. At the exact same time that he is just and fair and punishes evil, he also pardons through his son Jesus. God doesn't lay aside his justice to be loving. God doesn't lay aside his holiness to be tender. God is both of those things. He is all of the things that he is all the time at the same time. He is 
more loving than we'll ever understand. His love is superior to all imitations. Jesus is a true Savior who is superior to all imitation saviors. Jesus, through living a perfect life for us and dying a perfect death for us and rising from the dead, accomplished the superior work of salvation that can never be added to, taken away from, or repeated. The perfection of Jesus is so superior to all of our guilt that his death completely covers and pays for every sin that we have committed or imagined. And we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus. Jesus' grace for us is so superior in who he is and what he did for us. It is so superior that it is supreme over all religious disciplines or rituals or ceremonies or traditions. He's supreme and superior and more valuable than anything I could ever do for myself to try and make myself right with God. We are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. It is through his grace alone to us and our faith alone in him is what makes us right with God. So it is in light of that, it's in light of all that I just said here, that we're going to look at Acts 15 today. We're going to see how the apostles and the elders of the early church came to the conclusion that Jesus and his grace towards sinners like us is superior to the Mosaic Jewish law and traditions. And they're going to conclude that Jesus and his sacrifice of himself in our place is superior to every system for trying to secure salvation through human effort. So last week, all of chapter 14 of Acts, we saw how Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the church in Antioch in their first missionary journey. They do all the things they do in that missionary journey. They come back at the end of the chapter to give a report to that church who sent them on how the journey went. And so that's where they are now. They're back at home with their home church in Antioch. And that's where they are with all the believers when we pick it up in Acts chapter 15. So Acts 15 verse 1. This is what it says. But some men came down from Judea, that's Jerusalem, and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. This is a seriously unsettling moment for the church there in Antioch. It's a serious moment of instability and upheaval as they hear this statement from these guys from Jerusalem. They say, unless you are circumcised, which no one that was a Gentile was, no Gentile males were circumcised, only that was a Jewish, Hebrew, Israelite practice. Unless you're circumcised, you are not a Christian. You cannot be saved. So as this hit the believers in Antioch, who most of them were Gentiles, they, it just must have been this moment of great insecurity and distress for them. Now, first, 
glance and reading this in the first time, it may be easy to critique or be really hard on these brothers coming down from Jerusalem and say, how could they do this? How could they think this or believe this, much less try to influence other Christians to adopt this, that they have to be circumcised, observe the Mosaic law and traditions in order to be a Christian? How could they do this? But it's right that we check ourselves in that and understand this. These guys that came from Jerusalem likely were actually Christians. They likely actually believed in and trusted in Jesus. They were just Jewish. They had been raised their whole lives in the Jewish tradition, culture, and ceremonies, and rituals. They probably had grown up their whole lives before they knew Jesus, acknowledging and submitting to all the dietary restrictions. They were circumcised and they were eight days old. There's nothing they could do about that. And they observed all the clothing um, parameters, all the cleanliness restrictions. They probably, that was just normal, acceptable life to them. So when they became believers and they were born again through faith in Jesus, they saw no fit reason to give those things up. They saw, I love Jesus. He's the way by which I'm saved but I'm a Jew. I don't see any reason to depart from my people in this way, culturally and religiously. I'm going to keep up with all these practices. So in their minds, the being circumcised was really important. Acknowledging the Mosaic law really mattered. It was consequential. So ultimately, they are wrong. They are in error to tell other Christians that, they, that they've got to be circumcised and obey the Mosaic law. But it's right that we temper our critique of them in that way. So all these believers in Antioch, so many of them are Gentiles. And they must hear this news from these brothers and they say, but I thought I was a Christian. I thought I had new life in Christ. I thought that I had received forgiveness of my sins through his name. Do I really now have to essentially become Jewish in order to be truly Christian? Is that what I have to do? And there were just such serious and weighty and consequential implications of this for the believers in Antioch. Because if they were going to then be circumcised, which was an, was an outward sign of saying, I will obey all the Mosaic law. That's what circumcision was. It was a sign to say, I am one who will adhere to all the Levitical Mosaic law. If they were going to do that, they would have to reorient their lives and turn their lives so upside down in such a way, they'd have to change where they worked and everything they ate, basically, the clothes they wore, the people they were around, the house they lived in, the proximity they were in with other people. It was this huge thing for them. And it's important to point out that no one had been able to keep the Mosaic Law. No one had been able to perfectly and without fault keep all the Levitical Law. It even says in Galatians 3, verses 10 and 11, all who rely on the law are cursed. Cursed is anyone who doesn't obey the entire law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous will live by faith. So Paul and Barnabas, they rightly see this for what it is. As well-intended as these brothers might have been, it was ultimately a false teaching. It was a falsehood. This is a false teaching, and it needed to be corrected, and it needed to be addressed, 
and the believers in Antioch and the believers in Jerusalem needed to be protected from this false teaching. So one thing this brings up for us is this is, a, this is an unrighteous, this is an incorrect standard that the believers in Jerusalem are trying to impose on the Gentile believers in Antioch. And so, like I said, it's easy to critique these guys, easy to fault them for this, but we need to also understand that in our day today, we need to carefully make sure that we don't impose unbiblical standards on other people. Like if there's disciplines or, or principles by which we live, even if they're good, if they're not explicitly spelled out in the Bible, it's not necessarily right for us to impose those on other people. Let me explain an example. I love soda. I'm just saying it. I grew up drinking soda pop my whole life. I drank a lot of Mountain Dew. In high school, I'd do 320 ounces a day. Hey, don't judge me, right? But um, now I've grown up some. My wife is really good to me. Katie, always trying to help me be healthy. And I, I see the, the folly of that. Now, it's not good for you. You don't need to be drinking that much soda, right? And so I largely, in my life now, try to stay away from drinking soda, at least that much, right? And so I think it's, it's good for me. It's healthy for me. It's a good thing to standard to have. But I don't need to be, as a Christian, telling you or anybody else, brother, I'm not sure if you're a Christian if you're drinking soda. Because that's, that's not spelled out in the Bible. Now, do you need to take care of your body as it's a temple, the Holy Spirit, as it's given to you to be used and stewarded by God's glory? Absolutely. That's in the Bible. That's spelled out in the Bible. Your body's a temple, the Holy Spirit. But drinking soda, it's not in there, right? Now, that's a silly, that's a laughable, that's a funny illustration. But we can all think of a dozen examples right now that are much more serious and consequential. We need to be careful that we don't do what these guys did and seek to impose standards on other people that are unbiblical. Jesus himself says in John 5, 24, anyone who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. Belief in Jesus, that's the standard of whether or not someone's a Christian. They believe in Jesus, trust in him, have faith in him, and then by evidence of their changed life, do they give real evidence that they truly love Jesus? Not that they adhere to some unbiblical standard. Okay, going to verse 3, Acts 15. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So Paul and Barnabas and some other guys from the church of Antioch, they go up through one circumstance or another. They're sharing what God has done through their ministry, the fruit that he's born through the gospel with everyone they encounter along the way. And they get to the church in Jerusalem. They share with the believers, the brothers there, and the Pharisee group there. They're ready for them. They say, yes, we know of this. We know of the Gentile believers down there. And they do need to be observing the Mosaic law and getting circumcised. So verse 6, it goes on. It says, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, 
Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, us and them being us Jewish people and them Gentile people, no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? This is what Peter has to say in this moment. He stands up and he says this. He maintains that God has made a way for Gentile people to be welcomed into the family of God, to be saved, to be given justifying, saving faith through Jesus, and in such a way that makes it so they don't have to become Jewish. And he even goes so far as to say that this would be putting God to the test. To, to apply this standard to the Gentile believers in Peter's mind is more than just like a trying to be really careful and scrupulous and make sure we're extra righteous. It's more than just trying to really hard go the extra mile and be extra good. It's actually like this affront to God. It's actually a testing of God saying, God, your provision of yourself as God the Son, Jesus, and sacrificing, sacrificing yourself for me, that was good, but it apparently wasn't good enough to make it so that I don't have to obey the Mosaic law. So I have to add to what you have done in order to secure my salvation. Peter rightly saw that as like a repudiation, a saying to God, no thanks to the full and complete and immeasurably costly sacrifice of his own son on our behalf. It was an affront and an opposition to God. That's how superior Jesus is to everything in the Mosaic law. And that's how superior Peter saw him as. Just Consider this illustration for a moment. It is an admittedly poor illustration, but I think it might be helpful. Consider that we all come to church in here one morning and parking lot's full, and so we all park on this guy's yard over here. We all pile up our cars on his grass, and we're all in here, and he comes in that door, and he graciously and humbly and carefully says, hey, folks, uh, sorry to bother you, but I do need your cars off my yard. I got people coming, so if you would, please come on over as soon as you can. Get those cars out of there. I'm not going to call the police, nothing like that. But I do need your cars off my yard. Thank you so much. Thanks. And we all turned to that guy and said, ah, uh, nah, no thanks. We understand. We recognize you're being patient. But we'll do that later. If you can't see, we're like religious people. And we're up in here in church, so we'll do that in a minute. I hope we would all recognize that would be a repudiation of that guy's patience. That would be a test of that guy's patience. That's a silly example, but in a similar way to say to God, your sacrifice of Jesus, your stated and declared and, and ex exemplified way of me being saved by Jesus, no thanks. I will make my own way, and through some religious discipline or tradition or ceremony, I will make myself right with God apart from what you have set out for me. Charles Spurgeon says, says it this way. He says, 
why would you pin your filthy rags to the clean linen that Christ is? Christ, Jesus is this perfectly white linen of righteousness. And we presume to think that we're going to take our filthy rags of religious discipline or adherence and pin them on there and somehow add to what Christ has done for us. And Spurgeon goes on to say again, he says, why would you throw in your counterfeit bills when the pure, costly gold of Christ has been already paid on your behalf? It's like taking Monopoly money play money and trying to add it to the price that's already been paid for us. I'd like to encourage everybody here to make an effort this week to try to read the book of Hebrews, the whole thing. It's 13 chapters long. You could probably read the whole thing inside of an hour. But the book of Hebrews blasts out and supports and illustrates this message right here, that Jesus is the superior Savior, King, Lord, and Master of all things. He is superior to angels. He is superior to the law. The Mosaic law was valuable. Jesus is more valuable. His sacrifice was superior to every other sacrifice because it was performed one time and removed all sin for all time and can never be and never will be repeated. Just consider this right here. Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 4 it says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is, these are all things that we need to hear. Everybody here needs to hear this and benefit from it. Many of us exist in one of two ways. There's, there's some of us who feel as though if we miss church on a Sunday, for some legitimate reason, we miss church, or miss out on taking communion together like we're going to be able to do today, we, we have a sensitive conscience in that way, and we begin to feel like, I feel bad for having missed church. Honestly, I feel like a little less of a Christian. I have a little nagging concern that I hope God doesn't see me as a little less of a Christian. I hope God is not disappointed in me that I miss church some. There's some of us that are like that. And there's others of us that live in a different way where throughout the week, we live in a way that ignores and dishonors God displeasing him with our lives, willingly sinning, not making war against sin, but we say, I do go to church though. I am in there every week, and I even take communion, so I know I'm good with God. Both perspectives are not right. Both groups of people need to hear that communion doesn't save us, that participating in church 
being around church, religious tradition, discipline, routine, none of those things save us. It is Christ, the superior one, the superior sacrifice that earns all our favor and all our right standing with God. And so back in Acts 15 and verse 11, this is what Peter says. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. There is nothing else I can do to add to my salvation that Jesus has bought for me. It is his grace through faith in him that I am made right with God and forgiven forever. Those that have trusted in Christ have been saved by his grace They live in newness of life, and all of their obedience to God, all of their living in a transformed and renewed and different way, all they're seeking to grow in holiness and grow in righteousness is not an effort to earn their salvation. It's rather to glorify God for their salvation that they already have through his grace, through his sacrifice, what he purchased for us on the cross. All of the life of a Christian, once they've been saved, is live to say, thank you, Jesus, for my salvation that you gave me. I now live to honor you and make much of you for that because it is his love. It's his grace and his work, his perfection and his righteousness that counts, not mine. All of those things of Christ's All those things are counted as if they were ours because of what Christ has done for us. So at this moment in Acts 15, Kent Hughes says it this way, speaking of this. He says that the doctrine of the church of Christ and the doctrine of the way of salvation were at stake. History and experience have proven that anything made a co-requirement with faith soon shoves faith aside and becomes the means of salvation. So as we keep going, we get to verse 12 of Acts 15. It says, and all the assembly fell silent. So after Peter said his thing, everybody's quiet. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, now this is James, James the just, he was called He's half-brother to Jesus. He's a leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he's son of Mary and Joseph. So he was closely linked to Jesus. He thought Jesus was out of his mind during his earthly ministry. After Jesus died and rose again, James, his eyes were opened by faith, and he believed in his half-brother Jesus and was now a leader of the church there in Jerusalem. This is what he says. James replied, Brothers, Listen to me, Simeon, and that's Simon. I'm not sure why ESV puts Simeon there, but he's saying Simon Peter is just an alternate spelling of Simon. Talking about Peter. James says, Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that, David that has fallen I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, 
that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So James, half-brother of Jesus, stands up and he proposes this. He says, right, Peter, correct. They do not need to be circumcised. They do not need to surrender and submit to all the Mosaic law. Rather, I see these four provisions that will be wise and helpful for the brothers down there in Antioch. They, they need to stay away from food that was involved in idle pagan sacrifices. They need to not eat meat that has blood still in it. They need to not eat meat from animals that's been strangled. And they need to stay away from sexual immorality. So these are provisions that he puts out there. And it is so right that he does this. It is so wise that he does this because the Gentile believers in Antioch still lived around and in community with many believers who were Jewish culturally. They were of Jewish heritage. And so there's lots of Jewish believers and Gentile believers having life right next to each other. And the Jewish believers believed in all the Mosaic law. The Gentile believers had grown up and been raised apart from all the Mosaic law. So where Jewish believers would have had this strong sensitivity about and a strong aversion to anything having to do with idols, the Gentiles would have been like, well, this is just leftover, thrown out, free food. I believe in Jesus now. I'm secure in him. I don't believe in this idol anyway, and I need to eat, and I don't see anything wrong with this. I'm just going to eat this. So the Jews would have been like, no, that's unclean. You don't do that. I love Jesus now too, but we're not to do that, clearly. And then Food that had blood in it was the same way. Gentiles wouldn't have had any frame of reference for what was wrong with that, but the Jews did. And then when it came to sexual immorality, the Jewish people were examples in the world of purity and chastity. The, among Gentiles, it wasn't like that. There was tons of sexual promiscuity among all these Gentiles. So whereas Jews would have been raised and taught and trained in this way that all fornication was wrong, as Gentile believers came to faith, that might have been something they had to turn away from and seek to see renewed in their life. So these first three provisions were ones that were significant concessions on the part of the Gentile believers. These Gentile believers were willing to say, yes, I will restrict my own freedom for the sake and the benefit of my brothers in order to not give unnecessary offense to them. And it's so right on another level that James says this, because this is the same James who writes the book of James later in the New Testament. He says in James 3, verses 17 through 18, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This this concession on the part of the Gentile believers for the Jewish believers is one that is peaceable wisdom. It's going to contribute to peace and unity and connection in that family there in Antioch. 
Those believers are willing to say, yes, I'll stay away from that food and that meat for the sake of my brothers, these Jewish believers. The word is considerate, which means to be careful not to cause inconvenience or hurt to others. It is right that believers in Jesus live in a way that is considerate of one another, making great efforts within wisdom to not give unnecessary offense in the areas where it's not necessary. It wouldn't be helpful. So moving from there, going to verse 22, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So, verses 23 through 29, it is a summation of what James has essentially just said. So the believers, the elders, the leaders in Jerusalem, they say, this is the decision we're coming to. We're going to write it down, put it in writing on a piece of paper for these people, and we're going to send it down there so they can read it themselves, and we're going to send it by way of these two brothers, Judas and Silas, who are a part of our church up here. They'll go back with Paul and Barnabas. So that when they went down and they said, good news, brothers in Antioch, as regarding you guys having to be circumcised, obeying the whole Mosaic law, it turns out the brothers in Jerusalem have come to this conclusion. Looks like you, it would not be right for you to do that. And as those believers in Antioch responded, really, is that true? Is that really what they said? They could say, yeah, we got it written down right here. And here's Judas and Silas. They're part of the church up there. You can ask them. And they could affirm and say, yes, amen. This is the decision we've come to. So that's what they do. So that's what happens in 23 through 29. Um, I'm not going to read all of that. You can read it. Um, verses 30 through 35, when we get back into verse 30, it says, So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So when they get down there and they read this letter to the brothers down there, there's no one grumbling saying, Oh, man, no more rare steak. God. No, they rejoice, they're glad, they're grateful. They say, praise God, yes, I am justified by my faith in Jesus. I am saved by his grace to me. I do not have to uproot my life and try to add something to it that would be of no effect to my salvation, that would be a dishonoring to God. I can trust in God and rest in him. And yes, I am Glad to restrict my freedom in this way for the benefit of my family, the church. So all of us need to realize a couple of things as we read this. That even if I'm a very meticulous moral person, I'm a very careful religious person. I, I, I'm a part of my church. I participate in my church. I'm around, I take communion. I've been baptized. I've been through a catechism. I've been confirmed in another church. Even if I'm doing all those things, but I do not trust in Christ and in him alone for salvation, that I'm actually not truly saved. Because no amount of rule keeping can erase my guilt before God. No religious ceremonies, baptism, communion, confirmation, or anything else can actually save. As good as those things may be, they do not actually secure and provide salvation. Rather, we see it most clearly articulated in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. Paul says, But God, being rich 
in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the statement that all the believers there in Jerusalem and in Antioch could make with great confidence and with strong conviction was this. They could say, I know that the grace of God is the only thing that saves me. I know that the grace of God is the only thing that saves me. And because I know that, I know also that I have complete assurance that since my salvation ultimately depends on God's grace and not on my performance in life, I am completely forgiven. I can never lose my salvation for not performing some ritual or participating in some ceremony. I will never be rejected by God for any reason. Since my salvation doesn't ultimately depend on what I do, but rather on what Christ did, I am fully loved and truly accepted by God forever. So it is it's so right, it is so good of God to let us do communion today when this is the text for today. We're going to take communion in a few minutes. And we get to take communion today while Peter's words are in our ears. That we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus. Because communion does not save us. Communion cannot save us. This is an outward, visible expression, an outward and public proclamation that we make as the people of God where we say, thank you, Jesus. I do this as a means to say that I identify as one of those who benefit, who benefit from the blessing and the work of Jesus and pouring out his blood and breaking his body for me. That's what we're saying publicly as we take communion. Communion is for those who have benefited from God's grace in that way, from those who can say, yes, I have new life in him. Yes, I've been forgiven completely and freely from all I've ever done or will do in my life. And now I take communion to say that I am one of those. For some of you here, you can honestly say that that's not you. You could say, I don't know if I believe in Jesus. I'm in a place in my life where I'm not sure if I know him. I don't know that I trust him. Well, this moment right now could be the moment in which you trust in Jesus right now and become a Christian, have a new life today. And you can then take communion for the first time in your life. If that's you and you want to talk to somebody, you want to ask somebody, what, what is this like to be a Christian? What does it mean? What does it further mean? What does it look like to believe in Jesus? You can come talk to me after. Pastor Chris will be around. We'll be available for that. So in a couple minutes, we're going to take communion together. 
I'm going to invite the band to come back up here, and they're going to play. And um, just as you feel led, I invite you to come and take the elements here. There's a table here and one back there. Take that back to your spot and, we'll, and hang on to them. We'll take them together in a minute. Um, I'm going to pray for us. So God, thank you so much. God, that your word is true. You can be trusted. You are faithful and you are trustworthy. You are merciful and you are gracious. God, when your word says that it is by grace that we are saved, that even while we were dead in trespasses and in sins, you loved us. Even when we were far from you, God, you loved us and you had tender patience for us. You had compassion on us in our lost and wayward state, even while we were your enemies and opposed to you. You loved us, God. And you did not hold back in giving everything you had in your own son to buy us back from the dominion of darkness and from enslavement to sin. God, I thank you so much for this, God. And I pray for anyone in this room that is in any way uncertain of their standing with you, God, that today would be the day that they would turn from sin and believe in you, Jesus, and find you to be exactly what you are as a great and awesome Savior. So, God, we love you. Please do with your word now what only you can do and help these people encourage them and strengthen them. God, as we take communion, God, we pray that, Jesus, your sacrifice and your work be exalted and made much of. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name.